It was 10 years and 500 episodes ago that Grape Encounters Radio was born inside a crumbling old barn far off the beaten path in California's Central Coast wine country. Host David Wilson and his team had to keep it underground. After all, they were going to present wine in a very different, a very unpretentious way. The wine snobs were not going to like this one bit. There would be protests, tar and feathers, Supreme Court challenges, and more. The Grape Encounters team was going to challenge the old ways and fight to return wine to the masses without fear of guilt for not knowing how to pronounce terroir or sommelier or gewürztraminer or viognier. This week, Grape Encounters marches forward with the next 500 episodes for wine enthusiasts from every walk of life. Over the past 10 years, we've learned one very valuable lesson. People dig what we've been sharing. Heck, even the Supreme Court justices are having more fun with their wine. Except one or two who like beer. Today, we're off and running with the next 500 episodes of Grape Encounters Radio. A very different kind of wine show that is as much about you as it is about what you have in your glass. We're here to make wine more fun. So buckle up for one heck of a ride as we uncork the next decade of Grape Encounters. And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. And I tell you what, I couldn't be more excited about how we're going to launch the second 500 episodes of Grape Encounters. Last week was our episode number 500. It was, you know, kind of a warm and fuzzy retrospective of how we got to where we are today and how we became a Maverick Wine Show. So I had put together a list of guests that we were going to do for the next three or four shows to kind of celebrate our anniversary month. And then I read this story a couple of days ago and I go, up, oh, stop the presses, Uh-oh. stop the presses, because it was a story that was the embodiment of Grape Encounters. Everything I stand for, everything I believe in, every reason why I put the word Wine Maverick on my card. And it has to do with one of the first two Master of Wines, Tim Hanai who is just one of the most amazing spokespeople in the wine business, thought leaders, actually a thought leader who's leading thought in a very different direction. And very successfully, he's been chronicled in so many different publications from Forbes to the Wall Street Journal to Bloomberg, just about every place. He is a consultant. We'll get into that. But I just want to welcome you, Tim, to the show. Thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Yay. Goodness gracious. So let's talk about, first of all, there was an article a couple of days ago, and it was in a trade publication called Drinks Business. And they had to bleep out part of the word there. The article is talking about you and the subject of food and wine pairing, and basically you making a statement that so much of it is just bull, and then I can't say the rest on the radio. Yeah, it starts with bulls, and it ends with hit. Oh, I thought it just rhymed with spit. It does. <laughs> okay. Okay, and this is uh, talking about a speaking engagement that you did in New Zealand, correct? New Zealand. Yeah, it was a Sauvignon Blanc conference, was it not? Correct. So give me some background on that because you're sitting there with a bunch of people who many, if not most – really buy into the whole food and wine pairing thing. And you're saying some things that are going to definitely get under people's skin. And you've been doing this, by the way, for a while now. Yeah, I have. 
And, and how's that working <laughs> like for you? Second grade. So how's that working for you? And I, and I do want to point out the fact that you are also a chef, right? Yeah. And so you've got, you know, serious food experience and you're an educator. You've gotten into so many different aspects of how wine interacts with everything else that goes on in our world. I really want to talk to you about, you know, some of the sensory stuff that you've been digging into. But, you know, at what point did you say to yourself, wait a second, a lot of this is just fooey? So when I when I was after I epically failed the master of wine examination in 1989, I signed up for a course on critical thinking and, and clear technical writing. And because the master of wine examination for anybody who, who's who's interested, the master sommelier is a program for people in the hospitality industry primarily. Master of wine is the business and science and and commercial and legal and all all that stuff. Sort of the the global wine trade and right. From the yeah. beard all the way all the way down. And the examinations four days, and you've got to write literally reads of, of, of theoretical essays in addition to blind tastings, three blind tastings of 12 wines each. So in 1989, you know, nobody from the US had ever passed this. There was no real study course for it. So I signed up for a writing course and I signed up and went to the wrong one for three days. Um what? okay. I ended up with 80 electrical engineers discussing what's called critical thinking and disruptive innovation. Disruptive it, innovation. Disruptive innovation. Yeah. So is there a definition for disruptive innovation that Yes, disruptive it? innovation is something that comes along that becomes almost de facto required for what you do. It could be pricing of a product that disrupts all of the other products in a category and they've got to either go down or up to this new disruptive pricing. But disruptive technology was the shift from the old DOS where if you wanted to to compute you had to know code. And it was extremely frustrating for most people. The people who knew how to do it felt that they had some sort of superiority or edge because they knew how to do it. But it really kept a limit on how computers would be used until somebody said, wait a minute, we've got the graphic user interface. Instead of all this code to open a folder, we'll just have a picture of the folder. And you go click, click, folder opens. It totally disrupted computing and changed literally the course of history. But in a very good way. Right. Yeah. And this this actually has a lot to do with my work that people interpret certain words like disruptive. And we only think about it almost as a metaphor that disruption's bad. You don't want to disrupt the class. You don't want to disrupt the apple cart or whatever. Right. Right. It just disruptive doesn't necessarily indicate that it's something bad. It can be incredibly powerful and positive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're sitting there around the Christmas tree and Santa Claus comes down the chimney. That's called a collective delusion. Yes. <laughs> so, All the, right. it, so you don't believe you know, in Santa Claus. This has been my life for the past 30 years is, well, what's that? What's this over here? You know, 30 years ago when I was talking about umami taste, and I actually introduced the concept into the Western culinary and wine world. Yes, you did. And people wanted to hang me from a tree. It was like, no, you know, you're crazy and, and whatever. So that, that was a disruption. But yet now it's common knowledge. There are umami burger restaurants. There's Trader Joe's umami in a jar with dried mushrooms and, and so forth. Are, so, you, are you getting your royalty? for that? No. 
God. But I'm not paying royalties for music I play illegally either with, with our band. Okay, so. so it's kind of a wash then? Yeah. Yeah, but umami is a big thing, yeah. And so so people wanted to tar and feather you initially? Is that the case? Oh, sir, and, and very seriously, the article that we're talking about now about my presentation, which we'll get to in just a second, has just created a Twitter storm and a Facebook storm and oh, this guy's crazy. How could he even even know anything about wine if he, you know, but they don't understand and, and they won't take the time to actually see what it is I do and what I'm proposing. They're responding to a headline and a few brief insights that went out in an international trade publication for people in the alcoholic beverage business. It's called Drinks International. And so she was there and she picked up one line from a a 90-minute presentation that had 400 people in it. (laughs) And, you know, they decided to run with that. And so... Took it out of context. Yeah. But you know what? That's good, isn't it? I mean, look at look at all the stir that you've caused. People are calling you, and I'm, I'm sure I'm one of a gazillion people who want to talk to you about this. The funny thing is the people in a, in a collective delusion will become more and more entrenched if there's anything that's threatening their little bubble of the collective. And, you know, Santa Claus is a collective delusion. We know, or, or I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, I, I hope, hope I'm not you know, shattering your world, but there is no Santa Claus. You're kind of bumming me out now. I know it. I'm sorry. All right. Well, listen, Tim, hold on a second, okay? We're talking to Tim Haney. There are so many things that you are, apart from being one of the first two Master of Wines here in North America. You are also the author of an awesome book, and people really might want to really... Oh, he's holding it up. Why you like the wines you like, which we're going to get into in just a second as well. You don't mind plugging the book in a bit, do you? No, not a bit. Okay. Well, we're going to be talking, basically, there's a whole chapter on disruptive innovation. There's in disruptive change. There's a whole chapter on critical thinking and, and what happened to me when I went went to spend three days with the electrical engineers and all that. So that's actually all in all the right. book. Well, hold those thoughts. Tim Haney is my guest. I can't think of a better way to start our next 500 episodes than with him. He's sitting there in the snow in Bend, Oregon right now. I can see it sprinkling out his window as we talk, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio with your host, David Wilson. We've got 500 episodes under our belt, and we've barely scratched the surface, which is why you'll never find wine in the short subject section of your library. Ten years ago, I created Grape Encounters Radio while living in breathtaking Lake Arrowhead. Perched about an hour above the Southern California metropolis in the majestic San Bernardino National Forest. Lake Arrowhead is a place where wine lifestyle flourishes, imaginations run wild, and people come from around the world to discover a more peaceful and re-energizing way of life. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Lynn B. Wilson, a bona fide leader in resort real estate sales. From charming alpine cottages to stunning estates on the shores of shimmering Lake Arrowhead, Lynn B. Wilson and Associates have been changing lives for decades. If you truly want to live on top of the world, Lynn B. Wilson and Associates can show you how. They'll even host you in luxury accommodations while you explore the limitless possibilities. Log on to lynnbwilson.com. That's lynnbwilson.com. Live the life you imagine. 
It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the Santa Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the internet. Go to peakranch.com. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio, broadcasting from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Did you know that our studio is built in one of America's top-rated wine bars? You know what that means, don't you? Yep. When we uncork a new episode, you can uncork something very special indeed. Back with Grape Encounters Radio and talking to Tim Haney. He is an international consultant to the wine industry, wine education, retail wine, grocery and spirits business, management. He's a professionally trained chef. He's also, by the way, a really hot musician, and he's also one of the great experts in, on, or even about wine in the known world, and also has a really, really terrific book. If you haven't read it yet, you're one of only three people that love wine. It's called Why You Like the Wines You Like. It's a a fairly scholarly publication, is it not? Well, it it, is. It's a publication that no publisher would ever touch because it it really covers so many what seems like disparate areas of sensory genetics and neurology and psychology and background on history and traditions that even most wine experts don't know anymore. It's pretty wide ranging. We're talking about umami. The chapter that was in here was written by one of my mentors, who's the scientist who discovered the human receptor for umami taste. It's got all sorts of stuff in there. So let's let's dive into exactly why you take the position that so much of the food and wine pairing is fooey. I have my own opinions about it, and they might be different than yours, but I just want to get it real clear to our audience. You know, what are the things that you do take exception to, and what do we do about it? Well, let me start with what I know in terms of enjoyment of wine and food. There's absolutely no question that there are interactions between wine and food. But my work is in why even experts don't agree what's what's even happening. So you've got two experts, the same wine, the same food, arguing about whether it's smooth and delicious or bitter and horrible and whatever. Right, yeah. And so we take that down to a genetic level. Many people, when they have cilantro, 
get this horrible, soapy, disgusting perception of it. Right. And it's known that they have a cluster of genes called OR62A. And if you've got that cluster, you will never like cilantro. Yet everybody, oh, I used to not like it. They can learn to like it as your palate becomes more sophisticated. No, it, it just doesn't. Julia Child had that gene and cilantro is disgusting. End of story. And it's not going to change. And this happens with how people experience alcohol burn, uh, bitterness. So much of our behaviors and our preferences far away from wine are simply based on genetics. I've, I've got genetics that need me to adjust what I see, but I can't say, oh, I'm a wine expert. So if you want to see wine the way I see it, you have to use my glasses. Well, no, they're for me. I can find other people that have the same correction and say here, you know, my wife and I can share glasses because she needs the same correction. And they'll, they'll all be eating cilantro. Yeah. That's it. So, so, so premise number one is that we experience things the same way and nothing could be further from the truth. And so the second thing is sensory neurology. And sensory neurology creates illusions. Sensory neurology is constantly shifting where in the brain we're processing things called neuroplasticity. And so that's different for different people. So let, there, let, me inter- uh, let me interrupt for a second. There's a, a book called Neuroenology by uh, Gordon Shepard. Yeah, and it's usually not. Unfortunately, most of the books like molecular gastronomy and, and, and all that tend to actually work from back asswards. They, they work from the wine and then try to explain the wine to the human phenomenon. I work completely the opposite way. Okay, so, so let's explain that. So how much do you like salt or not? I am a generally medium to low salt person. Okay. And do you know people who are heavy salters? Yeah, I married one. Okay, great. Did you know that's uh, the number one sign of having the most taste buds? Is being a heavy salt taster. A heavy salter. A heavy salter. And what they're doing is suppressing bitterness. And I'm going to tell you about your wife in just a second from the research that we do and, and how this all works. But but what we do is we start with the individual, try to help people understand the behaviors of the themselves and attitudes and perception, and then apply that to the people around them in the world. So as sommeliers, you can become so much better at your job by doing this. But because I'm also saying it it disqualifies wine and food pairing, then they get angry. They don't even want to know what the research is. So you can, you can get a beat on somebody. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you can get a beat on somebody by seeing just how much salt they put on their food, and you start to get a little more dialed in in terms of what they are likely to, to, to enjoy. They cannot even imagine. Really? Literally to the point of having people sometimes learn about themselves to the level they break down in tears of, of happiness. Because people out, out there who are heavy salters are told, you know, quit doing that. You're ruining the food. They tend to have uh, neural capacities and, and their sensitivities are a little ADHD, sometimes OCD. Your wife probably has to cut tags out of her clothes. She's really picky about sheets and linen and in pillowcases, very picky about fabric detergents and softeners. She loves fragrances around the house. Do you guys have a rescue pet? No, but we've been talking about getting one. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> yeah, so and so so she would be the one who's really pushing for that. She's empathetic to a fault sometimes with people and, and whatever. She hears things other people don't hear, and that's just her world. Some people have 500 taste buds. Other people have 11,000. 
Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. At the 11,000 end are usually so sensitive, they can't even drink dry wines. So they're sweet wine drinkers. That's the people with the most taste buds. Isn't that something? And why is that? Just out of curiosity. So you're into music, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Does your wife ever tell you to to, to turn it down or turn the TV down? Mm, Pretty much all the Uh, time. Yeah. Yeah. And so people hear things at different amplitude. And so so a, a bass sound level for one person could be really loud for a next and almost unintelligible for, for another, depending on your tympanic membrane and auditory neurology and so forth. Very interesting stuff. Oh, I mean, it, this is so freaking cool. We're, we're different. We know that. But what the big mistake that we're making is we don't know why and how and what it means. So people just parade, oh, try this wine. It smells like these things. And it's just a bunch of metaphors and stuff that our brain makes up. And then other people People are going, why? You know, I feel stupid. I don't even like this. Yeah. And, and, and they'll be sitting there nodding their head. Oh, yeah. I know. And we have created in this industry, and I'm talking about management, winemaking, retailers, so much guilt, unnecessary guilt. And it angers me to no end. And when you talk about the number of taste buds that somebody has on their tongue, you, you know, there are certain people that are very content with their $4 bottle of wine. And I could put a $40 bottle in, in front of them or a $400 bottle bottle and it's not going to make any difference they love the four dollar bottle so why are we why are we trying to upsell them to something that they're never going to taste because going back to the computer analogy if we're the keeper of the of the information we feel superior we feel we've got to share and this is just human nature there's nothing wrong with it this is one of the big things i'm trying to disrupt we're supposed to be a hospitality industry and we are not we are inhospitable we're going to stop for a moment right there what a great place to segue. We are inhospitable. I'm talking to Tim Haney, Master of Wine. He's in the news a lot this week because he had some very sharp things to say that people don't like hearing, but I happen to agree with him 100%. He's got a great book called Why You Like the Wines You Like, which you ought to read, and I think you'll find it very enlightening. Tim, can you hang on for just a second? You got it. We'll be right back with more Grape Encounters right after this. We've got to take a breather for a minute or two. Don't go away. Remember, if we don't let the wine breathe, it's impossible for the show to be done in good taste. The Central Coast of California is world-renowned for exceptional wines, but it's also one of the most vibrant and alluring travel destinations in America because the wide range of things to see and do here is absolutely astonishing. From stunning beaches to breathtaking hiking trails to world-class dining, artisan craftswork, and so much more, California's Central Coast is addictive. For those visiting this magical region, there's no better place to call home base than the city of Atascadero. Atascadero is perfectly centered in the middle of everything you'll want to see and do while you're here. A true slice of Americana. The locals here are eager to welcome you, and the accommodations are plentiful, comfortable, and affordable. Atascadero is a 365 days a year destination with mild winter weather and mostly sunny days, even when the rest of the country is bundled up. For more information about the warm and welcoming town of Atascadero, log on to visitatascadero.com. Discover the California Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. 
At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, Walnuts and Wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio. After 10 years and 500 episodes, David has become very comfortable with breaking the rules, as you'll see momentarily, which is all well and good as long as he doesn't break our expensive glasses. Tim Haney is my guest on Grape Encounters Radio, a fellow maverick. And you know what? It's not too often that... You get to be a fellow maverick with a master of wine because, you know, those guys, you know, they're pretty strict guys. A lot of them buy the book, huh, Tim? Some of them, yeah. Sometimes that happens. But you know what? I, I think actually my experience with people who have earned high levels of certification is that the more you do learn, maybe the less strict you do become because the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And that's kind of one of my guiding principles. When the the lowest form of learning is knowing. The lowest oh, very good point. I know, isn't that cool? Yeah, I really I stole I, that from somebody, but I, but I went, yeah, you know? How deep do you get into the relationship between other sensory things. I know you're a musician, for instance, and I'm fascinated with the relationship between music and wine. And some really good studies, the winemaker Montez study, which uh, was Chile, I believe, where they discovered, or at least they concluded, in looking at this one particular study, and there have been certainly others after it, they concluded that when wine, like big red wines, were consumed while listening to music that was in minor keys, that the wine was more enjoyable. Do, well, you, do you agree? Well, so so the, first of all, you know, there are these blanket statements, and no, I don't agree that it happens for everybody, but it might happen for some, and just the act that you've got people and music and whatever changes the whole neurological thing. What we know is three things that determine everything that we perceive. Okay. Number one is our sensory genetics determine how many taste buds, what kind, olfaction, our sensitivities to sound, light, touch, everything. Okay. Right. okay. So genetics determines what and at what intensity and even if at all certain things occur. If you've got color blindness, there's genes that are missing, you don't have those receptors. That's all. So those colors don't exist. So if I let's let's stop there for just one second. If I have a very small number of taste buds, I discover that, and there are ways to check that. Should I feel inferior? Oh no, God no! Why? Well, because, what's your shoe size? Huh? My shoe size? I, yeah. I, I wear a thirteen. Oh oh. You know, if your feet were more mature, they would be a little bit more elegant. 
and you would fit into my shoe. This is ridiculous. It, it is what it is. Yeah. And there's no, there's so many advantages to having less taste buds. And I tell people that I say, you know what, you should be happy because you know, the, the, the person out there that's got a gazillion taste buds that can taste things that you can't taste. They're going to be drawn to wines that are more expensive and all kinds of stuff. Because we got so much territory to cover. It's just no better. It's not better. It's, it's what you have. Thank you. I agree. I agree with that. There is no better. We're trying to do is help people understand where they are in all of this and have wine professionals understand it so that we're not just making these arbitrary recommendations and spouting off about our BS. And there's, there's just this false arrogance that there's some sort of superiority to be one place or another. And it's not, it's just physiology. So that's that. Okay. So, so, so that's, then you've got sensory neurology Sensory neurology is, is adaptations. It's what part of the brain's processing things. We've got all sorts of illusions that demonstrate this. And so our brains work differently as well. So not only do we differ in what and at what intensity are we sensing things, but our brain is shifting constantly neuroplasticity to try to figure it out. And then the third thing is sensory psychology, Oh my gosh, I went to Italy. I love Italian wines. Uh, everything Italian. You can just see them, their memories, the psychological effect of a trip to Italy or an association. Or that somebody says, oh, do you smell the Olala berries in the wine? Oh yeah. Oh, now I get it. And they, but psychologically, they want to be a part of that. And so that's a huge, huge part of it as well. And, and that's our environment, our peers, our aspirations, our learning. So you've got two people smelling the same Sauvignon Blanc, and one has a grass allergy that their brain's saying, stay away from this because of the, the compounds that, that actually are in grass, the pyrazines. While another person's thinking of this wonderful summers and growing up, and whatever. And they're smelling the same thing and they can both be masters of wine, but one hates that smell and the other loves it. That's why some people have pink houses. You know, you walk down the street and you look at, you know, just do some people watching and you look at how people dress and how they behave and, you know, their habits. And we're we're all very, we're all very different people. I go back to a trip that I took to the lesser Antilles in a sailboat that that was just crazy and, and, and thinking, yeah, I want, a, I want a pink house in the, in the Caribbean is a little respite from my snowy home in Bend, Oregon right now, you know? So just this alone renders wine and food pairing personal. It doesn't mean things don't happen. It doesn't mean that you might find some combination that is just phantasmagorical, but it doesn't mean the person next to you is going to think the same thing. Or even if you try it again with different music in a different environment, that it's going to change things. But, but now have you just made this vastly more complicated because in a way, not in a way, we, we have uh, compartmentalized wines and foods in such a way that we can just say white wine, fish, red wine, meat or whatever. I mean, over oversimplifying. But now when you introduce the idea that we are also 
infinitely different and so complex. How do I reconcile that as a consumer? How do I now, when I hang up or when I stop listening to to I, Tim and Dave, what am I going to do? So, so what you do is pay more attention to the people in your life if you love wine. And if you're really passionate about it, create space so somebody and, – and let people know this is how I might describe it, but not everybody gets that. I mean, we're, ju- we're just irresponsible with this. There is absolutely zero basis for red wine and red meat. You've been told that the fat helps to coat your mouth and make the wine smoother. I want you to do this and report on air or come to my house. I'll do it for you. I just did this last night with a group. Cook a beautiful prime New York strip or or choice or ribeye. Grill it rare. Try the fat. Sip some strong red wine. Try some fat. Sip it. The wine gets more, more bitter, more astringent. It doesn't soften the wine. Try the protein. That's the source of umami, the amino acids and and the proteins. Try a sip of a, a Cabernet. Try the food, try the wine. It gets more bitter, more astringent. Put salt on it. It smooths it out. Even better, serve salt and lemon like they do in Tuscany or how they balance the sauces in Bordeaux and and whatever. Do this with your wife tonight and report back to me. Salt and lemon on your hand, just like for a tequila. Glass of strong red wine. Sip of wine. Lick hand just a little bit. Sip of wine. Smooth the silk. Wow. Just that yeah, easy. Just that. She'll go wow. I guarantee you a hundred percent. She she'll go wow. But your wife loves salt because she she does not typically. She may have psychologically learned to like or acquired the taste for strong high alcohol red wines, but that's not in her wheelhouse. She wants delicacy. She wants finesse. She really really wants smooth, just like she does for her pillowcases and sheets and fabrics and and other things. All right. So, we, all right. So we got to, we're going to take one last quick break here, Tim, and then I'm going to ask you to bring it on home. I'm going to open just the last few minutes up to you, and you're going to solve everybody's wine woes in a couple of minutes. Jam session. Jam session. Exactly. We're talking to Tim Haney, master of wine, author of. He holds the book up in front of me right now. There it is. It is why you like the wines you like. And uh, it's uh, it's available on Amazon. Get so it on; everything's fine. available. In fact, you can buy Tim on Amazon. Yeah, or no, perfect. you're on you're on eBay. I believe you're 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 up for auction. Actually, all right, we're gonna yeah, be back. I have to get new teeth. We auction my palate. <laughs> we're gonna, we'll be back with more Tim Hanny, master of wine and master of all known things. I think actually he's a uh, he's a pretty pretty smart guy. When we return with Grape Encounters Radio. Sometimes drinking wine makes you just want to curl up in a comfy chair and dream about puppy dogs, faraway places, and other happy thoughts. Or you can just enjoy that cuvee in your glass and lose yourself in the conversation on Grape Encounters Radio. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. 
That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the Santa Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the internet. Go to peakranch.com. Ten years ago, I created Grape Encounters Radio while living in breathtaking Lake Arrowhead. Perched about an hour above the Southern California metropolis in the majestic San Bernardino National Forest. Lake Arrowhead is a place where wine lifestyle flourishes, imaginations run wild, and people come from around the world to discover a more peaceful and re-energizing way of life. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Lynn B. Wilson, a bona fide leader in resort real estate sales. From charming alpine cottages to stunning estates on the shores of shimmering Lake Arrowhead, Lynn B. Wilson and Associates have been changing lives for decades. If you truly want to live on top of the world, Lynn B. Wilson and Associates can show you how. They'll even host you in luxury accommodations while you explore the limitless possibilities. Log on to lynnbwilson.com. That's lynnbwilson.com. Live the life you imagine. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, walnuts and wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. People often ask, Why hasn't someone tarred and feathered Grape Encounters host David Wilson for breaking so many of the old rules? Simple. No one likes the old rules. This hour has flown by so incredibly fast. Tim Haney is my guest. You were what, number two Master of Wine in North America? No, number one. There were two of us. You're co-number ones. And I'm much prettier and much smarter and much funnier than Joel Butler. Oh, okay. Now, how many are there now? 
Uh, in the U.S., I, there's about 30 of us oh. or in, in North America. Wow. That's a very, very tiny club. All right. You know what? I, I promised listeners when we broke away a, a couple of minutes ago that I, I just want to give it to you, and I'm going to try to uh, be Mr. Budowski for a second. Take it home for us. Unconfuse us. Well, I may not because I've been studying wine passionately and gastronomy. I come from a really, really Francophilic background on wines and cuisine and my, my training as a chef. And I've been doing this since 1966. Wow. So this is 53 years. Yeah. And over a period of time, there was more and more dissonance in my head. Like something was really, really wrong with, with all of this stuff. So 30 years ago, I shifted my focus and trying to figure out why experts can't agree, why we say things are classical matches when I know they're not and that kind of stuff. I was called by Jancis Robinson, you know, one of the most amazing wine personalities in the world. I was the wine and food pairing guru. 30 years ago. Yeah. So I decided what would happen if I turned my research, not so much about the wine anymore, but, but about consumer behavior, about perception, about cleaning up the history and traditions. And so fundamentally, my life has been, okay, we, we sort something out, we open a door, and then there's 10 new doors for us to look at. But the long and the short of it is everybody listening to everybody in the world is a biologically unique organism. Our sensory physiology, our genetics, even if we're identical twins, there are differences. And they can be profound in what we experience, how wine tastes or smells, how we respond to sweetness. The second thing is that neurologically, our brains work differently. And we can look at the same illusion and people see virtually the opposite thing. And it's because of what's going on neurologically for them. And then the final thing is our life experiences, our learning, our education. So what the wine industry needs to get is to simplify this and really engage. We need to know that, that Moscato drinkers and white Zinfandel drinkers actually have the most taste buds. And they love the wines because they're sweet and that the French always love sweet wines. We've got also these moronic cliches like, oh, Americans like sweet wines because they grew up on Coca-Cola. Well, 100 years ago, it was very typical for French champagne to be 30% sweeter than Coca-Cola. Oh my gosh. And, and, and you're an expert. You don't know that, right? That's, it's shocking to me, actually. You don't know that Montrachet in the great vintages, when people used to wax on poetically and write about Montrachet, the, the great model for Chardonnay, it was a sweet wine, not a dry wine. So what's fascinating here is that, assuming this is all true, and I, I'm taking your word for it, that means that all of these wine folk who have been poking fun at the people who were drinking White Zen and Moscato and the sweeter wines. Or Naomi Pinot Noir. Nobody, Ma- nobody's safe from, from the great arrogance of the wine industry. And we're full, and, and for the most part, we're full of crap. We might, we, we, we might very well be criticizing the super tasters. Well, and the super taster is a, is, is a word that was applied for a very specific genetic study done by a colleague of mine who, who I work with, who actually called me her hero in the Wall Street Journal. And it's Dr. Linda Bartoshuk. And so people take this idea of the super taster and think then they 
arrogantly apply it like I am a size 11 shoe and you're a 13. And it's just stupid. And Linda agrees it was a very bad choice of words, especially the way it's getting misapplied by people who actually have no idea what the term means. And it's a a hypersensitivity to a compound that's used in uh, thyroid prescription medications, a group of compounds called tiaurea. And if you're genetically predisposed, somebody puts it on their tongue and it's like this, oh, goddess, oh. And then the person sitting next to them is, wow, it's bitter, but you're kind of overreacting. And then the next person sitting there doesn't taste it. And all it means is you've got the gene responsible for that specific thing. It doesn't mean you're a super taster. It just means the intensity of tiaurea, given your specific genetics, is disgusting and unbearable, just like we talked about with cilantro. And just like it is for dry wines for the people who are the sweet wine diehards. And that's that's why we say sweet wine lovers have the most taste buds. So our whole background on history, our background of French wines and, and whatever, our cliches, and don't get me started on metaphors because we don't have a time, but it's all this melange of crap <laughs> that then somebody just simply wants to have a nice wine for dinner. They get somebody with who's possibly really well-intentioned that loves people, who's trying to practice hospitality, but we can't because we're so in the dark ages. We so don't understand things and we don't even want to hear it. Oh, make him shut up. You know? It, oh it, my it gosh. Just... You have just blown my mind today. I'm going to lay in bed tossing and turning tonight because it's so different from what we've all been. I mean, it's, it's actually 180 from what we've been talking. You're experiencing disruptive innovation and the dissonance that comes with collapsing collective delusions. Well, see, you know, and when we started this conversation, I said that you and I were simpatico and I, I still very much believe that, but maybe for somewhat different reasons. And I really need to learn more about the science behind why you believe and have come to the conclusions that you've come to, because it's really, it's fascinating stuff. It's fun. Tim, we got to go today, but not without you putting in a plug. What do we want to plug before you go? We got the book on Amazon, but also we've got in the pragmatic part of me is we're working more and more in, in wine business education. And if you go to winebusinesseducation.com, we're just launching a new eight-lesson online on-demand wine business course for anybody who wants to learn about the industry, thinks they want to go into the wine business, open a winery, plant a vineyard. I will make sure that we put that up on the Grape Encounters website. Go to grapeencounters.com. We'll have it up in the next few days. Tim Haney, I can't thank you enough. David, absolutely a pleasure. What a pleasure. We got so much more to talk about, really. And I hope that you'll come back on this show. That is going to do it for this week's edition of Grape Encounters. This was show 501. And Tim, happy birthday, man. There you go. 67. Awesome. All right. We'll see everybody next week. Well, this episode of Grape Encounters is in the bag. It's hard to imagine you haven't missed some episodes, so why not hunt them down at grapeencounters.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast sites. Grape Encounter Studios are located in beautiful Atascadero, California. That's Central Coast wine country, baby. Come visit us. But be warned, you won't want to leave. That's okay, we have a spare bedroom. But it's 55 degrees and full of old bottles.